there's not that many states that uh, I have not been to, uh, but this was one of them. This is my first time in West Virginia. It's on, it was on a very short list of states that I haven't been to, so that was good. Flew into to Pittsburgh, and then you know we got a got a rental car and we were driving and had this uncontrollable urge to listen to John Denver as we like crossed <laughs> the border. We sang it. We sang. We did. I couldn't find it. I, I didn't want. To, I didn't want to get my phone out and look for things while I was driving. That's dangerous. So we just sang it. And uh, and by it, you know what it is. You know. You know what we're talking about. I, I did hear something uh, disturbing. I don't know if you guys know this. I don't. I don't. I don't want to start off on the wrong foot here. I heard something disturbing about that song, though. Uh, that West Virginia was not the original place that they was going to put in there. It was like Massachusetts or something. Which, by the way. Uh, that doesn't work nearly as well. There's no, there's no chance that song is as popular if it says, uh, country roads in Massachusetts. That's, what is that? That's, so good call to change that by, by John Denver. Uh, if, so, uh, quick word about 1517. You, uh, how many, who here besides Tony? It's not fair. Uh, knows, uh, why, why something would be called 1517? Do you guys know what the significance of that is? Right here? What's that? What is it? There you go. The, the date of the, the Protestant Reformation, or the date commonly, uh, that really, that, that's the date most people ascribe to when the Reformation started. So even though, uh, you know, here we are in, in a Baptist church, and, and, uh, and then I'm a, I'm a Lutheran, um, one thing we have in common is the Reformation was good to both of us. So <laughs> you're welcome for all that, you know. Uh, but so uh, in 15, so 1570 is the date that um, Luther nailed the 95 theses to the Castle Church door in Wittenberg. Uh, had had 95 things he wanted to let the Pope know about, and the one of the big things he wanted to let the Pope know about uh, was this idea of repentance. And he makes this statement in Theseus 1 where he says the entire life of the Christian is one of repentance. And that sounds like kind of a, like a harsh statement, a little bit like, whoa, like the whole life of the Christian is one of repentance. Well, he'll be repenting all the time. The, the reason that he does this is that a big, a big hinge for the, for the Reformation was that Luther believed correctly that the Catholic Church for a long time had mistranslated this word metanoia that we refer to as repentance. So it's repentance. And they had translated it not repentance, but do penance. Now, repentance and do penance are not the same thing. Do penance would mean, oh, you've acknowledged that you've done this bad thing. Now you must do something to make up for that. Whereas repentance is turning from sin to something else. This has nothing to do with my talk. I'm just giving you a little bit of a 1517. <laughs> it's because I work for 1517. We're going to talk a little bit about 1517. And we didn't have music, so I got more time than I would have otherwise. <laughs> but as time has gone on in the church, I do fear that we're... That we sometimes smuggle in that old do penance back into our idea of repentance. So there was a I, I was a 
I was outside of a restaurant, uh, and there was a guy on the street. I walked out of this restaurant with my wife, and there's a guy on the street, and he has holding this sign. And he said, it just said, divorce is an abomination. Repent. That's what it was. That's it. And he was just holding it, and he was just yelling that over and over and over again. And it really bugged me. Um, not because I don't, not because I'm a big fan of divorce or anything. It's not like, it's not something I'm into. But it bugged me because he wasn't giving people anything to repent to. See, the idea here is what? If you've been divorced, you need to repent. But if you don't have nothing to turn to, what are you returning to? Not divorce? You're turning what into, you, you repent to monogamy and fidelity. And so that was bugging me a lot. And, uh, my wife knew it was bugging me as I walked by because I kept looking. And then she grabbed me and she's like, don't do it. <laughs> and I said, you need to go to the car because I have to. <laughs> so, uh, I went and beat him up. No, I, uh, I, so I went up to him and I said, repent to, repent to what? Also, I'm not divorced. Am I good? So I've never been divorced. So are me and God square then? Do I need, do I need to repent? Or do I, should I just have all this assurance because, you know, I didn't commit this abominable sin of divorce. And he didn't say anything. Would not, would not speak to me. And I told him, I was like, here's the thing. I don't have a problem with you, uh, talking about sin. Uh, but you must give people something to repent to. Because repentance is not do penance. It is you repenting to something else. And when you, and this is all just talking about why 1517 chose the name 1517. Just giving you a little little history lesson here. When you discover through a word of law, through God speaking his word of law to you, that accuses you and lets you know that you are in fact a sinner, that you have not measured up, that you have not done as you ought to do, what you are repenting to is not a better version of you. What you are repenting to is not away from vice towards virtue. That is not repentance. Repentance is not you acknowledging your sin and then telling God that you won't do that anymore and you'll do something better, something more virtuous, something more righteous. That is not what repentance is. That is a form of self-justification. Repentance, and this is what Luther meant in 1517 when he wrote, the life of the Christian is one of repentance, is acknowledging your sin and turning from that sin to Christ who can do something about it. That's what repentance is. It's a gift. And this is why God tells you to repent often. And this is why people don't want to repent often. Because what people, they think, repentance sounds like a harsh word. Repent, I don't want to repent. Repent means I have to acknowledge this bad thing and turn to this good thing. No. 
Repentance is a gift that God gives you and he tells you to do it daily. That's why you get a daily prayer that says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. How often? Every day. So every day then I acknowledge that once again I have woken up and turns out I'm still a sinner in need of Christ, which means I still need of the gift of repentance, which means I can acknowledge my sin and then turn to Christ who stands ready willing, able, happy to forgive it. That's what repentance is. And that's what happened in 1517. Let's talk about a parable. (laughs) All right. When I was like 10 years old, I lived in uh, Springfield, Illinois. And there was uh, this this big field behind my house. And there was, uh, that, and then there was this big tree line, these woods. And me and my brother used to, used to play in that field. And sometimes we would wander out from those woods. And one day, something amazing happened. We found treasure. We found the largest collection of snack cakes that you have ever seen in the woods, like God Himself had placed those with us directly on His mind. It was an amazing event. All kinds of snack cakes, chocolate ones with cream filling, cherry pies, all wrapped up, all sealed. I mean, hundreds of these things, just a mound of these things. I've never felt more like God was sovereign and knew and had all of my needs directly on his heart. Now, this was way too many snack cakes for us to let our mother see us with. So we had to get strategic about how we were going to transport all of these snack cakes the long distance from the tree line to the the bedroom closet, which is what needed to happen. So we spent all day into the evening, load up your pockets. We had we had a jacket on, load it up, unload it, back out, act like you're playing, load it up. And we transported all these Things. Well, somebody saw us making this trip back and forth. So, and uh, so as we had spent all day transporting these things, the doorbell rings and there's a guy there and he says, hey, I saw your kid. Uh, I think they were moving a massive pile of snack cakes from the woods to the house. I put those snack cakes there and this guy worked for a vending company. He said, those are all expired, and uh, we found worms in a bunch of them, so we had to get rid of them, and we were going to come back and burn them. (laughs) Devastating. (laughs) Devastating. Well, that's because, it is, you know, the treasure is in the eye of the beholder. Same. Jesus tells a parable about treasure in Matthew 13. A short one. Everyone knows it. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard this. Matthew 13, 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You know, I remember growing up. Do you guys know who uh, Jim Elliott is? Right? You know this guy? Went and preached the gospel to Indians over in Ecuador, ended up speared to death. 
There's a, I think it's, what is it, The End of the Spear? There's a movie made about him. Uh, I heard a lot about Jim Elliott growing up. My dad was a pastor, and he loved Jim Elliott. And, uh, and he had this, this statement that my dad like wrote in the cover, like the back cover of every Bible that he ever had, that Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, which is pretty good. That Twitter didn't exist then, but if it did, I would have recommended that he tweet that out. That's a good one. And it's true. And I remember reading Fox's Book of Martyrs as a kid and being like both horrified at all of the, the grotesque and terrible ways that Christians had died over the centuries. And also like in all that people would be willing to, the amount that people would be willing to suffer for the gospel. And then you read, you see the same thing in the pages of scripture with Paul. Or if you read, if you read the accounts of how the apostles died, it's all like, it's all almost horrific. And as I realized that Christian history is marked with persecution and disownment and martyrdom, I started feeling that I might not be willing to do that sort of thing. I would ask myself, like, could I do that? So many people giving up so much, giving up everything. And they, they seem to have a, a value, have placed a value on the gospel and, and Jesus that I was just simply not sure that I had. Like, sure, I might say it. Like, I, I say I believe it, but everyone knows that talk, talk is cheap, right? Everyone says that. And I, and I would try to get real honest and be like, man, if, if push comes to shove, is, am I able to do that? I affirm that God is worthy of all glory, honor, and worship, that he is the almighty creator of all things, and nothing is more valuable or precious than him. But would I give up everything? And when I'm really honest, I feel like there's a big difference between me and Jim Elliott and a huge chasm between me and the Apostle Paul, when he writes in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, whatever gain I had, I count, it, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, you, you read that, you're like, Amen. Now try to apply that and do, and be honest. Everything, the, the people I love, the things I've tried to work for, I count it all as rubbish. Do I do that? Is that what I count it as? And do you like, do you feel that? Maybe, maybe you don't. Maybe it's just me. I, I doubt it though. Do you feel that, that strange, uh, Mix of admiration and conviction. Where Paul writes those words and you think, that's incredible that you were able to do that. I, 
I, I want to be like that, but also feel that conviction that I don't know if that's, could I write that? It, sometimes we don't, we look at the scriptures and obviously we believe that this is God's word and that's inspired. But Paul wrote that as a person about himself. I would not write that about myself. I couldn't do it. I would, I, I, I would, I would not be even honest. And I had this, this ever growing thing as I, as I grew up feeling like I don't know if my devotion to God is what it ought to be. I don't know if I could stand up under persecution. I used to just like be, I grew up scared that, you know, that if, if, People came in and they were going to kill you if you didn't deny Christ, that I would waver. And when I've heard this particular parable talked about in the past, it has left me feeling quite guilty. Questioning my devotion to Christ, even my salvation at times. Have I give up, have I given up everything to acquire the the treasure of Christ. Would I? Do I have to do it with joy? Am I a fool who hasn't given what I cannot keep and therefore hasn't gained something I cannot lose? Am I, am I that fool? And as incredible and inspiring and as admirable as the stories of Christian sacrifices are and they are, That, thankfully, is not what this parable is about. I've heard it that way a lot. What's this treasure in the field? Oh, this is, this is Christ. And you go out and you give it. Christ is worth giving up everything. And you can, that's what the kingdom of God is like. Costs you everything. Well, it does cost you everything, but this parable is not about it in that way. So, one of uh, this is one of several parables in the in the 13th chapter of Matthew, including the sower, the weeds and the wheat and the mustard seed. In all these stories, there is a man and a field. And when Jesus explains these, we find that the son of God and the, that the son of God is the man and that the field is the world in all of them. So when Jesus gives you the explanation of some of these parables, every time the field is the world, the man is him. Now, he doesn't give you the explanation of this parable. He does not tell you what it means. And immediately we're like, I'm the man. Jesus just went off script and now suddenly I'm the man. Every other parable, he was the man. Now I'm the man. And that's not the case. When we hear Jesus say the kingdom of heaven is like, he's about to show us that God operates in ways to make, that, make no little, that make little sense to us. It is Jesus' go-to phrase right before he flips all the theological tables in our mind right over. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is like, he is about to say something that doesn't make any sense to the people that he's, that's about to hear it. He's not going to say the kingdom of God is like the thing you thought it was. 
That is not how the parables work. He says the kingdom of God is like, and it's not at all what you thought it was. And this is what he does here. And so our neatly organized uh, systematic theologies and ideas about God and the kingdom end up scattered. And we may panic and try to gather them all up. But if we pause, we might just get a better view of what God is up to. The best view of the kingdom of God is from down in the dirt. Now, there's a great temptation to try to distance God from the dirtiness of the world. We're down here in the muck and mire of sin and suffering, and he's up there in heaven somewhere in glory and righteousness, far removed from us in this fallen world. And we tend to believe that if we find that if we find God, we're going to do it by ascending to him. We're going to discover what God is like. We're going to do it by improving and getting better and doing more and trying harder. We're going to really we're going to reach it, uh, God by reaching a higher level of morality, spirituality, intellectually, any number of other ways. All religions and spiritualities do this, by the way. It's a journey of climbing spiritual ladders. This is what all spiritualities are like. All religions are like. You're trying to find the ladder to climb to God. What's the thing I got to do? There's got to be something that I've got to do to find God. He's requiring something of me, and I need to figure out which ladder it is that he needs to try, so I, that he needs me to try to climb so I can ascend to him. But that is not how Jesus says that his kingdom works. You have this happen in Luke seventeen twenty, when Jesus is asked by the Pharisees where the kingdom of God or when the kingdom of God would come. And he tells them the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, or behold, for the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, sometimes this has been mistranslated, and, and you have some old translation say in the middle of you, or in you. Sometimes this is not what this text says. This text says in the midst of you. In other words, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God works like this. It's here right now because I'm here. In the midst of you means the person talking to you right now. That's where the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is where the king is, and that is Jesus. Jesus is right there. He says, look, you're gonna, you wanna know when the kingdom of God's gonna arrive? It's here. Like us, the Pharisees thought the kingdom of God was gonna be something far more glamorous than what stood before them. Jesus isn't after political power. He isn't forming relationships with people of high influence. Yet, according to him, he is The kingdom of God in flesh and blood. This isn't what you would expect and cannot be observed with anything other than the eyes of God-gifted faith. The kingdom of God isn't a quest man is able to embark on. He cannot find it, build it, or enter it on his own. The kingdom of God is God himself on a rescue mission in the person and work of Christ. It's the holy invasion of heaven to earth. It is God coming down low, lower than you could ever imagine him being willing to come. 
He makes his kingdom small enough to grow in the womb of a teenage girl. That's how small he makes himself. You ever think about the creator of heaven and earth floating down? It's like, like the fallopian tubes. It's dangerous stuff. The creator of all things did that. That's how small he made himself. Unassuming enough to dwell in backwater town in Galilee for 30 years, poor enough to be counted with beggars and the impoverished, shameful enough to be associated with tax collectors and prostitutes, and strong enough to take on the sins of the whole world. This is what is involved in the Son of God descending to the field of this world. He is looking for something, and he knows it's somewhere in the dirt. In Jesus, we see God who comes with his sleeves rolled up. He comes to seek and to save and to dig. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a large, I bought a house uh, that I lived in for a long time. I still live there, but I was living in this house for like 10 years before I noticed this one thing. There's this field. I got a lot of field stories here. I got a field with candy in it. I got, it's a different field, different field, different house. This is in Arkansas. There's this field though. It's across, there's my street and then across the street there's, um, there's this field and it was always overgrown. And one day they started mowing it down short. The kind of things they start doing when they're about to build something. And I live in a, in a, in a like a really growing area, but I live like on the outskirts of it, like in a small area because I don't want to be around people that much. And so, uh, I, I live there. But so this town, my town is a town of town that people get excited when they see something new about to go up. Like, ooh, what are we getting? And, you know, so I start praying for a Chick-fil-A because I'll, with gas prices, I need to not have to drive so far. So, like, maybe we get that Chick-fil-A. That'd be good. Uh, and as it goes on, they start moaning. And I'm like, wait a minute. They're not building anything over there. And you start seeing... These little gravestones. Like, that's not a Chick-fil-A. That's a, you know, that's a cemetery. I didn't know. And that was not very exciting to me. For some reason, this, the, we don't, like, we don't think cemetery, like, oh great, new, new cemetery. Fantastic. That's, that was, that's what I was hoping for. When Jesus finds treasure in the field of this world, it's buried, it's dirty, it's dead. It's not the treasure the world sees as valuable. It's something or someone we buried so we wouldn't have to watch the process of decay and be overwhelmed. So our memories could remain good ones. You see, graveyards only exist because sinners do. No sinners, no graveyards. And it cries out that things are not as they should be. It cries out that the wages of sin is death. For us, a graveyard is a place of remembrance. But for Jesus, a graveyard is a place to go to work. It's a field full of undiscovered treasure. A field all of us. Are going to wind up in the Bible doesn't 
re- leave room for for spiritual uh, or for speculation about the spiritual condition we are all born in. Eric talked about this. I mean, Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, both of these like, the numerous passages talk about we are born dead in sin. You're dead. Spiritually speaking, you're dead. And you know what kind of things dead people do? None of the things. No things. They don't do any things. You can tell a dead person to do as many things as you want. They won't do any of them. That's how you are spiritually. We are unaware, though, that we are walking spiritual corpses, that when God wraps himself up in flesh and takes residence with his creation, he becomes the first man since Adam to be born spiritually alive. It is one of the things that separates Jesus from everyone else. Yes, he's fully God and fully man. He's also not spiritually dead like the rest of us. He's spiritually awakened. He's spiritually alive. And he was born alive to make war on the morgue, the undertaker, the casket, the graveyard. Someone sold a field near near my house. They're going to put a graveyard there. But that did not transfer owners for the last time. Jesus is in the business of buying up all the graveyards. Yeah, so what I'm saying to you is this. In this parable, a man, he goes and buys a field because he found a treasure hidden there. And in great joy, he gives up everything so that he can have it. I am saying that Jesus is that man and that that treasure is the world is is the is people is you i want to get the specifics it's you it's me it's people now if the consistency within jesus parables isn't enough to convince you that this story is all about him coming to the field of the world and purchasing it the language of purchase should be So the man goes up and gives everything he has to buy that field. This is incompatible with any notion that Jesus is the treasure and we are the man. Listen, listen to the, the, the language of purchase in the scripture. You have first Corinthians 620. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You have Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, and nation. While the Bible and church history is full of examples of people giving up everything for the sake of Christ, any notion that what they gave up purchased or secured the kingdom of God, Christ or salvations for themselves is antithetical to the gospel. It doesn't work. The message that God in Christ has ransomed, made atonement for, and purchased the entire world of sinners is the heart of the gospel. When Jesus' words, it is finished, are, uh, when he utters those words, what he's saying, that that's the nail in the coffin of transactional spirituality, that there's nothing more to buy. 
There's no more purchasing to go on here. Jesus has done all of the purchasing. He bought the whole field and everything buried in it. So this cannot be a parable about you giving up everything to obtain Christ because you purchasing Christ is heretical. We don't need no 1517 if we're going to start believing that. You're going to start giving up all you have so that you can purchase the kingdom of God. I think one of the things that was hard for me was I was like, wait a minute, though. But Jesus is the treasure. Right? Because Jesus is to be treasured. Jesus, I don't want to hear the story about me being so, so important. God just treasures me so much. He just loves me so much. And then he's going to do all these things for me. This sounds like some health, wealth, and prosperity nonsense is what this sounds like. Well, treasure is in the eye of beholder. And what's true is that you're not anything special. Neither am I. But you are what God says that you are. So, here's how it works. God loves you because he does. That's it. And at first, this might seem kind of weird. What do you mean he loves me because he does? doesn't love you because you're good. He doesn't love you because you deserve it. He doesn't love you because you got saved and you've been faithful for a long time and so now he just really likes you a lot. He loves you because he does. Now, if anyone's ever had kids, you might know about this. So I have a 13-year-old daughter. And all the time I tell her this. You know why I love you? And she knows what's coming now, but she'll say, why? I mean, because. I can't, I can't help it. It's, I don't love, her. like, there's things I love about her. But there's also nothing that she could do that would make me not love her. I love her because I love her. Because I do. This is how this works with the treasure. You are treasured by God because you are. This is what John 3.16 is all about. For God so loved the world. Why do you love the world? doesn't say. He just does. Because God is love. And God loves the world in what kind of way? That he gave up everything so that he could have it. God loved the world. God loved the world that, that he gave his son so that he might purchase it. it you know, you know the, the verse in Hebrews where it says that in his joy, 
for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. That's what this parable is about. In his joy, God gives up everything to purchase people, sinners. That's weird to think about, too. That God's like, I'm going to want those sinners. And I can endure the suffering of the cross if I can have them. It's weird that you would be on his mind. Yes, this is the most agonizing form of torturous death that you could possibly endure. But I'm going to get Tony. I mean, I wouldn't do that. I mean, Tony seems all right, but that's what he does. It's a hard thing to accept both of these realities, that you are a wretched, wretched kind of sinner. Real, real average sinner, which is just bad. And that God says, you're a treasure. I treasure you, that I value you enough to go and give up everything to have you. I think, I think, this is helpful, though, as I as, as I was growing up and I was dealing with the these, these questions of of security, where I just didn't know if I was committed enough. Did I like, pray enough? Did I read the Bible enough? Did I did I, was I devoted enough? Was I have I have enough joy? Was I passionate enough? All of these kind of things just haunting me. I was what I was really struggling with was just believing what God said, which is that. No, I've purchased you. I love you. You're mine. And letting my identity be wrapped in those things. Do you know what all those other things are? All those other things are me trying to figure out if I can be good enough for God. And the answer to that is no. And I want you want to find all your security based in what you do or what you don't do. That's that's what we're prone to do. So what I was doing is like, if I could just abstain from enough things... And then do these other things, you know, pray enough, read my Bible enough. We used to have the longest prayer meetings at the church I grew up in. It was wild. Like, I mean, wild prayer meetings on, on uh, Wednesday nights. And they get the music playing real well. They put the lights down. It's a setup. <laughs> like 15 years old. And I have been set up to, for failure in this situation. Music, the lights down low. The music is going. You get down on your knees and like, they want you to pray forever. Like, there's so much praying going on. And like, these things would last for hour and a half of like nonstop. But like 15 minutes in, I got like that tweed mark from the chair on my face. And somebody says, let's gather up front. And you wake up and you're like, they thought you were really hardcore intercessing, but you were not. And so you stumble up there. That's brutal. It wasn't only until I got older, I'm like, hey, wait a second. Even Peter couldn't pray for one hour. I mean, you know, this is right. I mean, you know, Jesus is like, could you not wait one hour? Can you not say and pray with me one hour? He had Jesus in the flesh. It's just to make you guys feel better about your bad prayer life. I'm sorry, but the disciples have Jesus in the flesh walking around with them. And he's like, in his most agonizing hours, he's like, come over here and pray with me, boys. They all fall asleep 
he asked Peter, hey, could you not pray for one hour? And Peter's like, I could not. <laughs> no, Peter the rock. You ever think about how when Jesus looks at Peter, he's like, I'm not, you know, Simon, I'm going to call you Peter, which means the rock. And Peter was probably like, that's right. That's right, the rock. And he probably had like Dwayne Johnson on his mind, right? Like that kind of rock. Like, that's right, Jesus. You've named me correctly. I am going to be the rock. And then he didn't know that Jesus meant like, nah, you're going to sleep like a rock? You're going to get on some water and you're going to sink like a rock? Yeah, that kind of rock, Peter. That's not a compliment. Your head is going to be as hard as a rock? That's, that's what, uh, that's what he means there. But, all that to say, I, I really was, I really, like, I had all these kind of moments I did where I'd be like, I don't, am I even a Christian? Falling asleep in prayer meetings, I can't, like, I, my Bible reading plan is a disaster. And you start to realize that, wait a minute, why all of this stuff is so hard to do and it's plaguing me so badly because I am relying on this stuff to give me something that it can never give me, which is assurance that God loves me and that I'm saved. None of those things are just, like, there's nothing wrong with praying, obviously. I think think that goes without saying, in case it doesn't go without saying, prayer is great. I recommend you do it. Reading the Bible is great. Uh, my entire job is reading the Bible and talking about it, and writing about it. Uh, I read the I read the Bible a lot. Um, but I can't find any assurance in my performing those acts. Those spiritual disciplines are not why I'm accepted and loved by God. They're not what make me a Christian. What makes me a Christian is that I've been purchased by Christ. That he found me dead in trespasses and sin and gave up everything to have me. And I have realized that, that I've been trying to do this with my daughter. I realized early on there was, and I'll wrap it up here. The, uh, I had a guy that I was working with when my daughter was really young, uh, less than one years old. We had just, I just, we just had a baby and, there, I was doing some work with a guy, and uh, he had uh, recently had his niece, who was uh, 14 years old, come live with him because uh, her dad was in prison and her mom was a druggie and never around. And he was telling me that he that she was living with him, and I asked him how that was going, and he said, "Well, imagine." If you live the first 14 of your years of your life, not thinking that you were important or mattered to anyone. And for some reason, maybe it's because this was a girl and I, and I just had a baby daughter. I was like, man, I never want that to be the case. Not that, not that you, not, not this kind of thing where, you know, you tell your kid to lie, like you can do anything you want. No, no, you can't. You might not possess the skills to do anything you want. Like, I want to be, I want to break the world record in track, but you might be slow. And there's nothing you can do about it. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff where your kid is like some kind of, some kind of, is more special than everyone else. Something special about my kid. But to me, 
See, what was important was that she know that she was very special and important to me. From day one, before she did anything, you're, she's very special and important to me because she is. And so what I started doing was every night when I would put her to bed, and I still do this, I can show you. I could pull out my phone right now, and you could, I didn't get to talk to her last night because Tony kept us up too late. But uh, there was a, you'll see a text where she says, I'm going to bed. And I say to her, say, good night. You are very special and important to me. And so I started doing that when she was less than one years old every every day. And um, and sometimes, you know, she she knows this game. And sometimes she'll ask me why, and I'll say, because you are. But there's a better part about that, because I do want her to believe that she's special and important to someone that's her father, but I'm not going to be there forever. And I'm not the one that it ultimately matters that she's important and special to. It's good that she has that, that her dad tells her that and she, that she believes that. That despite anything else going on, I know that I am, I am special and I matter to my father, not because of anything I've done, but because I'm his daughter and I matter to him. Now, I know, it's a Baptist church. You don't baptize babies, but just imagine you did. <laughs> Pretend that you did. So, so also what I do with her, and I've done this since she was very little, is I tell her that you're very special and important to me. And you are a baptized child of God. Because I want her to have that identity. No matter what goes on in life and bad things will go on life, go on in life. I don't want her to think that she is anything more or less than a baptized child of God. I don't want her identity being in her failures or even more dangerous in her successes. I want her identity to be rooted right here. That I am a baptized child of God. Because that's who he says you are. Are you treasure to God? Yes. Why? Because he says so. The God who said, let there be light, and there was, says this is treasure. Even though it's a graveyard, even though it's dead, and this is the wild thing about, about God, that he delays, and we're wondering what's taking so long. All he's doing is accumulating more and more graveyards to himself, because on the last day, all that treasure is going to come popping up out of the ground to meet him in the air. Everything that he has named as treasure, everything that he shed his own blood to purchase, is going to live again. And that moment, I think maybe everyone who said, I don't know why you think that's so valuable, is going to be like, wow. Look at that. The church through the ages, Jim Elliot, the Apostle Paul, 
just regular people like you and me who aren't sure if we could do that or not, that he has said, you're my baptized child, your treasure that I have shed my blood for, you're what I have purchased, you will be raised up on the last day. So what is that parable about? It's not about you giving up anything. Not that you don't have things that are worth giving up. It is about God who sent his son to give up everything to have you and to rename you as just a dead sinner into someone treasured by God. Amen. Amen.